0: Oh! Welcome to our family gathering. We call this our family gathering of Cultivate. So we're glad you're here, especially if you're visiting with us today. I pray that uh, you do feel like you're among the family of God because that's what we believe we are because of the work of Jesus. So we've been going through a series this summer uh, called Invisible Made Visible. um, And what we've been doing is we've been saying that we can know what God is like because of what He has shown us to be true about Himself in Jesus. And uh, and, and John, the writer uh, of the book that we've been going through throughout this series, he says when he starts out the book, no one's ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. And so if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. And the great news is that God hasn't left us to ourselves to try to figure it out on our own, He's given us a way to see who He is. And so that's what we're doing throughout this series. We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at all the things that are true about Him. And then we're pulling from the truth of what we see in Jesus, some of the implications for our own life. So you may remember last week we talked about Jesus as being the bread of life. This week we're going to talk about Jesus as being the Holy One of God. And so last week we looked at John 6. This week we're going to look at John 6 also. We're just going to keep reading and pick up where we left off last week. And it's on page 741, if you're going to follow along in the Bibles underneath the seats. So if you remember last time when, uh, when we were talking about this, we were talking about a story where Jesus was followed by a crowd because he had given them some bread and some fish to eat. And, uh, and, and they were really excited about getting all this food from him. And so they followed him because they expected to get more of the same. And so when Jesus went to the other side of the lake, they went to the other side of the lake. And Jesus, knowing their heart, when they arrived, He had a conversation with them where He told them that they were looking for Him not because they were seeking Him, but because they were seeking temporary satisfaction. They wanted the food that Jesus could give, not the deeper satisfaction that comes from knowing Him, submitting to Him, and Him being that perfect leader that we all long for. The way that we put it is that they were seeking Him with their stomachs and not with their hearts. And so Jesus says... In the middle of that discourse, if you want to know the deeper satisfaction, you need to come to me as the bread of life. And then he says something really shocking. He goes and says to them, you need to actually eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that was shocking. That would be shocking for you and I if somebody told you to do that. You think they were like a vampire or something? But but even more so in, in his day because that... that gave a symbolism of death, and people weren't, ha- weren't to have anything to do with death because death was unclean. And so it's a, it, a completely shocking statement that he does this. And so what happens is people are disappointed and they're confused, they're a bit shocked by it, and they begin to leave Jesus. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. In John 6, we're going to start in verse 59 and go through 71. He said this, what we were just talking about, while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples says, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and would betray Him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless the Father has enabled Him. From this time many of His disciples turned back and no longer followed Him. Do you want to leave too? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And then John includes this. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray Him. So for the first time in Jesus' ministry, we actually see His following shrink rather than grow. Up until this point, the crowds that are following him are becoming larger and larger and larger to the point where in the last scene that we saw, he is actually feeding 5,000 men plus all their wives and kids. That's a pretty large group for for a, a carpenter that was roaming around Galilee talking about the kingdom of God. But here we see a shift. People begin to abandon and fall away from his teaching and leave him to go back to their everyday normal life. But at the very same time, you see some of his followers, a fewer amount of his followers, in this point just 12, who begin to to seem to grow in their commitment to Jesus. They seem to press in rather than peel away. And so Peter says, in a moment of, of inspiration, I guess, that the difference between the 12 who've believed and have come to know everything about Jesus, he says... What's different about us is that we've come to know that you are the holy one of God so what does he mean by that? what does it mean when jesus or when Peter confesses that Jesus is the holy one of god well the the word holy you may not realize this but the word holy means to be set apart for a specific purpose' it's to to be set apart um if you were to try to to send me a or call me up on the phone right? If you get my cell phone number, you try to give me a call, or send me a text or an email, or even if you bump, on, bump into me on the street while I'm uh, in the middle of a date night with my wife, Mandy, uh, what's, the, what, what's the reaction that you're going to get? Yeah, talk, talk to the hand. That's a good way to put it, right? You're, you're probably not going to get my attention, at least not for very long, unless it's an extreme emergency. Why is that? It's because we've decided together that we are going to set apart a specific time for the purpose of building intimacy and oneness in our marriage. We've set that side apart. It is holy. There is a sanctity to it. And we won't use that time for anything else other than what its intended purpose is for. And so when Peter says, this is God's holy one, from God it's his holy one he's saying this is the one that i've that God has set apart to accomplish the specific purpose of showing us what he's like he's god's set apart one he's his holy one and here here's the thing about god's holy one when someone is God's holy one, he is wholly set apart to represent God, which means that that person who is holy speaks with the authority of God on behalf of God. You see where I'm going with this? There's an authority to the Holy One because Peter's saying, you're from God. You speak on His behalf. You have His authority. A great example of this is actually found in Mark 1. Uh, There's a story that happens here which shows Jesus' authority, uh, which says this, they went to Capernaum, same place, same region, And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as what? One who has authority, right? Not as teachers of the law. And then just then, a man enters the synagogue who is possessed by an evil spirit and cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you not come to destroy us? I know that you are the what? The Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. Even, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And then at that point it says the news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. See, not only did Jesus teach with authority, But His words had authority too. His words actually had authority to put things back the way that God had intended them to be. And you see this by the way that He is able to cast out the demons. He is able to recreate things the way that God had the ability to create things in the beginning. So if you remember in in the beginning of the story, uh, when the world was created, what did God do to create the world? He spoke, right? He spoke, let there be light. And behold, there was light. Every time he speaks, something's created. And in the same way, what you see with Jesus is every time he speaks, something is recreated. Something that was dead comes alive. Something that was sick is healed. Something that was far off from God is drawn in near. He speaks with the authority of God. Unlike anybody who had ever spoken before, he carries the authority of God with him. And because of that, it means that we should put, consider his word to be more superior to every other word out there. There, there was a, a particular instance where this would be the case that we saw in, in the story where at one point Jesus takes Peter and James John, and John, kind of his inner circle of guys, and he goes to a mountain to pray together. Sounds like it's going to be a normal experience, right? Right? Well, they start to pray, and in the middle of it, Jesus begins to light up like a lantern. I mean, you know, like spotlights are are suddenly on him. And he is transfigured into something amazing. And then, if that weren't enough, alongside of him appear Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest leaders. You see Israel's greatest leader in Moses and Israel's greatest prophet in Elijah. And they're suddenly talking, the three of them together, as they're praying. And Peter, in the midst of it, uh, he starts to freak out, like I think a lot of us would. Uh, and he sees this, and he's going, this is fantastic. We have Israel's three greatest men together in one place. It would be kind of like having George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and I don't know, John F. Kennedy or something, all together in one place. And, and Peter's going, now let's build them some tents because it's getting kind of late, and we need to like figure out a place for all these people to stay because we don't want them to go away. We want them to stay here and continue to speak to us. And if Jesus has some great words, I mean, think of what it would be like to listen to Moses and Elijah too. You know, this is like the best of all worlds. And what does God do in the midst of it? He says this: A voice came from the cloud, saying, "This is my Son." whom I have chosen, holy. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. And the disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. In other words, God's saying, I, I've sent you prophets before, but this is altogether different. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's my son. He has my spirit on him. He is my specific chosen one he is holy listen to what he says above all else this is the reason i sent him to you the truth is all of us have voices that we listen to all the time there are things that that we listen to there are words that we hear voices telling us who we are and what we should be doing with our lives Voices that are vying for our attention and promising that if we would just listen to them long enough, they would give us a better life, right? What are some of the voices that we tend to listen to? (laughs) Dr. Phil. The evil Dr. Phil. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, if you've ever found yourself saying I'm so stupid, I will never live up to this, I will never get any better, why don't I even try? That's a voice that you're listening to. It's probably a voice that was taught that was put in you at maybe a very young age and you keep playing that tape recorder over and over and over again saying I'm no good, I will never live up, I'm never going to be anything. No one loves me. I and this voice of self-condemnation can be a dominant one in our lives and we can choose to listen to that above all other voices yeah so, yeah yeah kind of the opposite of uh, the opposite end of the spectrum of pride which is i'm better than everybody else i can be anything that i want to be and my happiness is uh the most important thing in my life, and if I'm just get happy, then I'll be somebody, but I'm never happy are I yeah what is the what is the tape of American culture primarily yeah if if you just c- you can consume your way to a better life did you know that if you buy all the right things in the right order, at the right time, and accrue the right amount of debt in the process of doing it, you're going to be somebody. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and God places a conscience within us in order to maybe give us a different track record. Yeah, what are some of the other voices? Yeah, we have an enemy, don't we? who loves to tempt us with everything under the sun, usually the thing that we keep running back to, with something along this lines. It's not so bad. Nobody knows. You're just going to do it once, and then you're going to stop. Don't listen to everybody else. Everyone else is trying to control you and tell you that you can't do this. It's not so bad for you. And then what happens the moment you do it? Why did you fall into that again? You are so pathetic, right? That's the enemy that's doing that to you. We have a bunch of voices that we listen to all the time, don't we? Even when things are silent, which for us in this day and age is like, you know, extremely rare to get even five seconds of silence. We fill up our day with noise, don't we? But even when there is silence there's still a voice going on in us telling us all kinds of things The truth is and some of those voices can be we can perceive as being positive right I mean we can run to our parents as the primary voice in our life and every time something happens we go back to mom and dad and we say mom you know remind me who I am or or do you love me we can look to our children that way too and say to them, I need your obedience to tell me that I'm a good parent so that I feel okay about myself, because if you rebel against me, then I won't be able to look at myself in the mirror and feel like I'm a decent person, right? We can look to relationships like that, and when we're in a relationship with somebody, when they say we're great, we're fantastic. We're flying high. We're posting everything on Facebook about how well things are going, and then the moment something goes bad and they say something bad about us, Now there's nothing to be found on Facebook. Or we're trashing them because they've ruined our image of ourselves. Our stock is so much in that voice that we're looking to it for life and it's not producing it for us. There are all kinds of voices that we do that. And here's the truth that you need to hear is that every other voice that you hear will at best, at worst, it's going to destroy you, at the very best, it is going to only have enough power to give you temporary life. And so you go into your boss's office and you say, how have I done today? And he says, great job. Keep up the good work. And you go, yes, words of eternal life. And then the next day comes and you're like, man, I feel awful. I'm such a screw-up. And your boss comes down on you hard and you go, who am I? <laughs> you know? Temporary life. Because they aren't the source of life, they cannot give you eternal life. They cannot sustain us for long. And so we end up jumping from one voice to another, hoping that the next one will be the one for us. So what is it that distinguishes Jesus' voice from all the others? Peter says that Jesus' words have the authority to give life eternal. Which sounds great, right? Right? If you could exchange temporary life for eternal life, how many of you are going to turn that deal down? Nobody's hands are going up. What's the fine print? Yeah, that's where we're going next, right? What's the catch? See, all of us, when we're presented with this deal, we go, wait, this is too great a deal. The problem is we're not willing to put down the temporary life that we get from the other voices to actually have eternal life. And we see this in the story too, don't we? Because uh, not everyone wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And and so what we see is that in verse 66, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him anymore. If Jesus' words are eternal life, then why is it that some people embrace Him as the Word of life and others reject Him? Why? Jesus gives a great synopsis, I think, of the reason in verse sixty-six or 63 when He says, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for how much? Nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. What Jesus is saying here is there are people that are seeking Me because they sought Me with their flesh. In other words, they wanted to see what Jesus could add to their already pre-existing, very busy, already scheduled lives. Jesus, what can You give us today before we go back to our homes? Is the question that they were asking. They had no real intention of actually devoting their lives to Him. So at the first sign of any kind of real cost, they fall away completely. I mean, think of some of the other things that we often want to find from Jesus. We want Him to bless our lives. We want Him to give us health. We want Him to give us a great job and security in terms of our finances. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want to be a more patient person, God. You know? Right? <laughs> <Hey. laughs> yeah, yeah, and I want it now. Make me patient in the next 30 seconds. You know? We think of all, all the things that we often run to Him to provide for us. Some, Many of those things are good things, right? But here's the truth. Finding them in Jesus is not enough to actually motivate you to dedicate your life to him as the 12 do at the end of the story. It's not enough. You could find everything that you wanted from Jesus. He could just hand it all over to you. And yet it would not be enough to devote yourself fully to him and the direction that he's going. The leadership that he wants to give into your life. It's not enough for you to submit to. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, some of you know this as parents. Uh, you shower your kids with everything they possibly could want. I mean, you spend way more at Christmas time than every other parent on the block. They got everything that they need when they go into school i mean they're just they're loaded down with everything that they could possibly imagine. Does that buy them allegiance and faithfulness to you as a parent <laughs> It doesn't, right? And so why should we expect as children that it would do the same for us if God would just give us the next thing that we wanted, that that would be the thing that makes us you know, give our hearts fully over to it. Yes, God, I would serve You if just for this. If You would give me this, then I would serve You. Have you ever played that game? It only works for a time, right? So here's the question that I've been racking my brain about this week. I mean, I've been meditating on this over and over and over and over again. And, and it, it, it was a conundrum for me for a little bit of time because I'm going, what is it that distinguished the 12 disciples from the rest? Why do the rest fall away and, and, and his 12 continue on with him seemingly more committed than they were before? Why did they continue to follow and believe that He was the One that God had sent to be the Holy One, bringing words of life? It wasn't because of what Jesus had given them because He had given them the same thing He had given everybody else, right? They ate too, bread and fish, just like everybody else did. It wasn't because they had some great spiritual insight Like they were some kind of scholars and theologians. They were like, well, we just understand Jesus much better. You notice they're just as confused about what Jesus says as the rest of everybody else. They're like, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They're confused, man. So what is it? What evidence was it that God was drawing them and maybe not the other ones, at least at that point? If you read back in the story, what you see that distinguishes the 12 from everybody else is that unlike the rest, the 12 had been living life alongside Jesus. And here's the really important one. They were regularly required to trust in His power and not their own. You see it over and over again, right? 5,000 people show up. They got a little boy's lunchbox. How are we going to feed everybody? Jesus says, you do it. Um, uh, How how do we do that, Jesus? Just go feed them. Watch what I do. Watch how powerful I am. I've put you in a situation now where you have no ability to provide for anyone other than my power. Think, Think. Just after that, they all jump on a boat. Guess who puts them on the boat? They didn't decide to get in the boat themselves. Who's like shooing them onto the boat? It's Jesus. And then they row out and they've been rowing in the middle of an angry sea for probably eight hours. Imagine that, if you will. I can't keep up 20 minutes of rowing at the gym. Try eight hours on an angry sea. You're exhausted, right? And at the moment of despair, at the point where you say we cannot get ourselves across, we will probably die out here and no one's going to remember our names, we're done. At the moment where their power is exhausted, who do they see coming across the lake? Walking on the waves. Jesus. And he walks out and with a single word, he says, let the... Let the storm be calm. And it is. And then instantly, they're across on the other side of the lake. See, the difference that we see between the twelve disciples and the ones that abandoned Jesus is that the others were interested in Jesus for what He could do for them. And in the twelve, they had experienced what Jesus could do Through them. They saw him multiply the loaves and the fish. They saw him calm the waves of the sea. They've seen him bring people to life. They've seen Jesus send them out two by two to people proclaiming the kingdom of God. And they've seen the life that happens in people's eyes when they start to share about this Jesus who had sent them along the way with nothing but the clothes on their back. There was no one and nothing else that could provide for them the life and the fulfillment that He could. He showed them what the kingdom looked like. Living every day with this power at work in their midst And the more they submitted to it, the more they were at the end of themselves, the more they saw Jesus' power revealed to them, the more they were able to go out in that power and see things change in the world. And they go, This is the recreative power of God in the world at this point in time, and we get to be part of the kingdom. Do you see the difference between the 12 and the crowns? Let me say this, just as an implication. If Jesus is a Sunday morning concept for you, if He is someone that you come to one day a week to get fed from but are never living life that demands the power of the Gospel in the way that you live your life, then you will walk away scratching your head like the crowds do and believing that you can produce a better life for yourself than the one that He can produce for you. You will every single time. But if you experience the work of God renewing all things through you and He gives you a picture of what it looks like for Him to use you and fill you, so then the words of Jesus, they aren't just a concept for you anymore. They are new life. So when Peter says to Jesus, to whom shall, he go? To, shall we go, he's not saying, I don't see any other options here. He's not like, well, I guess you're what's left, Jesus. You're like the last one on the team. Everyone else has been picked and there's no room, so yeah, okay, we'll get you on our team. He's not doing that at all. He's saying, we, there's no one else that can produce the kind of life that we get to participate in than you, We get to see all these happen before our eyes. We're not just on the receiving end of it. We get to be part of God's work in the world. And the exciting part is, we can't even imagine all the things that He'll do. And and for the disciples, they couldn't imagine what was next for them. Think of all the things that they were about to experience. And Jesus at one point says to them, all these things that you've seen me do, guess what? Greater things will you do. And when we hear that and we go, no way. No way. I mean, coming to a service on Sunday morning and then leaving and having lunch afterwards and then going about my everyday life, I'm not seeing it, Jesus. And Jesus is going, exactly. It's because the life that we're living isn't the life that demands the power of the Gospel in every moment. And that is the exact thing that Peter and the other disciples experienced. Now here's the rub. Here's the fine print, James, as you you were saying so eloquently. There is a steep cost to having the ability to participate in the life of Jesus. The crowd saw it, and they weren't in. The twelve saw it, and for the most part, other than the one, they were in. His disciples from that day forward, I, I don't know if you realize this, this is just where it starts, but do you know that His disciples from that day on to 5,000 men along with their wives and children are going to be known as the guys who follow the guy around that talks about eating flesh and drinking blood? I mean, so in the eyes of everybody else, they're the ones that, are keep, that, that keep going after the nut job. You know? And they're going to get labeled as such. See, and in a sense, what Jesus is doing is he's stripping down all the other identities and saying, You're going to be an outcast in your own home if you follow me. How many of us would be willing to, to look weird or strange, be willing to undergo that level of public ridicule just to follow Jesus? See, you need to know that He's got the words of eternal life if you're going to do that, right? If you're not sure about that, then you're thinking to yourself about the ridicule that might come from actually following Him. But if you're in love with Jesus and know the life that He can produce through you, then who gives a rip about what your neighbors think? See, here's the thing. Here I'm going to say this twice to make sure that we all get it because I think this is the... The nugget, the important thing at the end. The greatest benefit of following Jesus is also the greatest cost. The greatest benefit of following Jesus is at the same time the greatest cost, which is this. You get to, and you have to, lose your life. It's it's both a have to and a get to at the very same time. And that's bad news because none of us want to lose our lives. We want our lives to remain the way they are. We want all the voices that we tend to listen to over and over and over again. Because they're the only voices that we've had up into this time. But it's good news because all of us, when we're apart from the giver of life, experience the opposite of life, which is death. And so we know that the voices that we listen to in our life are death, and yet we keep running back to them. And Jesus is saying, you need to lose your life in order to find it. You need to lose what you've thought about yourself so that I can speak to you about who you are. You need to lose what you get to do in your free time and how you get to spend your time and give that to me so that I might actually fill your time with things that give you life, not the things you run to because you think they will give you life. See, the great news is when we lose our life for the sake of Jesus, we get to find His. And His life is far greater than anything that we can dream up for ourselves. The truth is this. There there are things that you will never understand about Jesus. There are things that you will never get about His Spirit, and about the way that He can fill you and use you, things that He wants to teach you and grow in you until you're obedient to follow Him. Even before you understand the meaning of what He's telling you to do. I mean, think of the disciples. They have no idea what's ahead. They don't even understand what He's talking about that day. And yet they're going, you're the Holy One of God. We've seen it. We've experienced it. We're with you. And then they get to experience greater things to come. I Many of you know that um, over this last year, Mandy and I and a group of uh, crazy individuals have been experimenting with what it looks like to do life in the everyday, to be on mission with God in the everyday as a family of missionary servants set to make disciples of uh, our neighbors in Runnymede, And um, it's messy. <laughs> um, one of the, so one of the things i didn't understand going in is everything seems so nice and clean and neat you just you know you go and you throw a bunch of parties and you have people over and you you know you display the life of the kingdom before their eyes as you care for one another as a family you envelop them into that family life so that they would begin to understand what it looks like to be part of god's family and then through that process of being able to speak the gospel to them and to one another God draws them in by His Spirit and makes them His children. And we just treat them as if they're the lost children of God. And so what we've been doing throughout this process is saying to my neighbors, I'm going to treat you as if you're my dad or my uncle or my brother or my aunt or my sister or my daughter. You're not any of those things to me in the flesh, but the flesh counts for nothing. The Spirit counts for everything. And God wants to use us to draw you to Himself And so we're just going to participate with God to do that. And I didn't realize at the beginning of the process how messy lives are. Because people are sinful and rebellious and have all kinds of voices going on in their heads that they're listening to over and over and over again. And you know what I found out through the process? I had many of the same voices. I have many of the same insecurities and still do. Many of the same things that cause me fear and trepidation when I think of actually sharing the Gospel with somebody that is going to like know me, not just like today, but tomorrow and the next day. They're going to continue to live next to me. And they may talk about their, the other neighbors that are around us, about the nut job that lives in that house and his crazy beliefs about Jesus. And all these fears just popping up. You know what else I found? That apart from being on the mission of Jesus, I would never have experienced what those fears are. See, God has a plan for us to grow us. And the only way that He has access to many of the deep recesses in our heart, the deep places of sin that have yet to bubble themselves out, is when we get into a community of people that are actually on mission with Jesus in the everyday. All kinds of stuff come out when we're called to lay down our lives because we don't want to lay down our lives. I want my Friday nights to me and to my wife. I want to be able to close the shades and the doors and not let people in and wash my hands of them. And yet the picture we see of the way that Jesus discipled people it was uncomfortable, and it was everyday life, and it was follow me, and it was lay down your life, because if you do, you'll find life through this, a life abundant, a life that can only be described as eternal. And what I've discovered is that the mission of Jesus requires the presence of Jesus to accomplish it. I have no ability to make disciples apart from His active, living presence in our home. And yet I can also testify that without being on the mission of Jesus with a family of other disciples, I would not have experienced the presence of Jesus in our home the way that we have this last year. So when you think about the quality of your own life, when you think about the way that you've been living recently, what comes to mind? What words would you describe for your own life? Would you use words like abundant and eternal and overflowing and joyous? Or are you more likely to use words like exhausting and monotonous and emotionally draining? See, we have two choices presented to us every single day, and in fact, multiple times every day. And that is, are we going to get up that day and follow Jesus with our lives, lay them down before Him so that we might pick up His life and experience the life that He has for us? Or are we going to hold tightly onto our lives and push Jesus away, living unto ourselves and experiencing the fruit of that decision? The disciples needed to continue to walk with Him Because they saw the life that He offered. And when we give our lives to Christ, He gives us His Spirit and He pushes us out on mission and He's a constant reminder of the presence in our life. And He he grows in us holiness and righteousness. All the things that we talked about this morning. All the things that we sang about before we started talking. Does the life you're living require the power of the Gospel? Or can you just manage it on your own? I want to ask this and kind of close with this question. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. If we believe that Jesus has the words of eternal life, if we believe that He is the Holy One of God, what would change about your life? Our lives. What would change? Now, um, actually, I'm glad that the kids came in at this point because I'd love for them to hear your answers. Kids, you guys need to know that w- when Jesus gets a hold of our family and our home, he radically turns things upside down. I'd love to know what do you think some of those things would be? What about our relationships? Yeah, we would we would press into conflict with people. Not create conflict, but when conflict happens, we would actually pursue people in love rather than dismiss them and disregard them and try to sit on the opposite side of the room with them when we have to be in the same place. Because we would believe that Jesus has abundance for us in our relationships. What else? Yeah. When somebody comes to you with a problem, are you quick to give them Jesus or some advice? I mean, some of us, we we so desperately want to help, um, but either we, we tear one another down because they're not living up to the expectations that we have for them, or when we do speak to them, We try to give them some helpful tips on how they can live life better or avoid the conflict that they're experiencing rather than say to them, Jesus may have you in this to grow something in you. Will you submit to Him long enough for Him to do it? Don't forget the Gospel. Don't see your circumstance as God disapproving you or saying He doesn't love you. He does. Look at the cross. He died in your place for you. Do we speak words of life to people? And there's a hundred things that we could talk about. And I hope the Spirit is pressing something in on you and that this week even, you will be submitting to Him to share that with somebody else, to be obedient with what He's telling you to do with it. That you wouldn't just dismiss it and say, I'm going to walk out the door and forget it and go back to my life. The only way that we experience life eternal is is when we follow this One who's given everything for us. And He has given everything for us. And so even if you're sitting here going, I, I haven't lived this way, I, I'm I'm not doing these things, and we're, you're, you're tempted to leave with the tape recorder which says, I'm no good, I'm never going to live up to this, please hear that Jesus knows your heart. I mean, one of the things that's amazing is that he, he says this, these are words are, are spirit and life, yet there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would not believe and who would betray Him. He's talking about Judas there. And you think, how is that supposed to be an encouragement to me? Jesus knows your heart. He knows it better than you do. He knows what you need before you know you need it. He knows what's wrong with you before you know what's wrong with you. Even when you think you know what's wrong with you, He knows the deeper thing that's wrong with you and can actually clean that thing up. And so I want to call you and remind you of His love for you. Because even though He knows you, He knows how messed up we are, He, he knows how much we fall short. The Gospel says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. He gave everything necessary to bring us back into God's family, even when we spat in his face and rejected him. And this God, who loves you with that kind of love, also wants to fill you and use you to be the holy ones of God in the lives of the people that you know. And so I wonder if you would trust him to do that. Let's pray and ask that he would. Jesus, we thank you that you are our perfect leader. You always do what is good, right, and perfect. You are perfect in every way, fully submitted to the Father on our behalf. Everywhere that we fall short, you come through every leader that we look to that has fallen short of our expectations, You meet every single one of them. We thank You that at the same time You have authority to speak on behalf of God. And so I pray for us, Lord, as Your holy ones, because You've made us holy. You took our hearts that were unpure and clean and you cleaned them up with the Gospel, you made them new, and then you put your Spirit inside of us. I pray that by that Spirit, God, we would be empowered to be your holy ones in this world. Lord, whatever fear it is that is going on in our hearts right now that keeps us from submitting to that work, I pray, God, that it would be tangibly visible to us. And that as we come to celebrate what you've done, with the bread and with the juice this morning, that we would bring that thing to You and lay it down at the table and pick up Your eternal words of life so that we would go from here and be Your holy ones. We trust You for that work. In Jesus' name, Amen.